Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, as we move into the word today, we are asking for the help of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask you to help us overcome resistance to the message. Um, I don't say that for my benefit, but for our benefits. If there's any roots in us that have grown, if there are any roots that have uh, taken the nourishment out of our lives and pointed us in a wrong direction, we ask you to pull those things up in the strong name of Jesus. If there are any strongholds that have kept us from experiencing the full grace and mercy of the Lord, bring those strongholds down. We realize, Lord, that the Word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and we ask you for the Word to do its work. We ask you to overcome unbelief and doubt. Father, the best of us, the ones that love you the most intensely, still struggle with this sort of thing sometimes. And I ask you to give us a victory over doubt and unbelief. I know our 30-day prayer covenant is over, but we ask you one more time, would you give us understanding? Would you give us revelation by the Holy Spirit so that we'll know what to do and what to pursue? Would you give us unction? Would you give us that anointing that helps us to do what is right in spite of what is wrong and what faces us and pushes back against us. Um, and Lord, would you give us unity? Bind our hearts together. Help us, when people see our church, may they know that we are yours because of our love. And uh, we ask for unity. Give us help. Give me as, help as I preach, Lord. I need your help. And give us help to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to speak to you today um, about the God of all comfort. Uh, the God of all comfort. It has nothing to do um, with the football game last night. I, <clears throat> I, uh, I knew about halftime that either Tennessee fans or Carolina fans, somebody was going to say they needed comfort, but this is beyond football. This is about life. This is about life. And um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Paul was writing to the Corinthians, as you can see. Paul had a full plate that he had to deal with when he wrote to those saints at Corinth. You know the story of the church's founding from the book of Acts. We know that God did wonderful and amazing things. Corinth was perhaps the most secular of all the cities that we read about in the book of Acts. Um, the morals were so low that uh, one euphemism to describe a prostitute was to call her a Corinthian girl. Uh, it was just a place with all kinds of issues. There was immorality in the church. 
There were doctrinal issues. The church was so divided over so many things. It was part of it was cultural. There were free and bond there that were in church together. There were Jews and Gentiles. And the church was trying to work through cultural differences, which should have not been a problem at all, but sometimes it is anyway. Uh, Paul had to deal with things. Uh, so many of the church members were slaves and he had to deal with them in their bondage. And he encouraged them, if there's a way you can get out of your slavery, do it. But if not, understand that even if you're a slave, the Lord has made you free. And he said, even if you are a free person, understand that you're still a bondservant of the Lord. He was constantly trying to weave groups together. Um, when you get to 1 Corinthians 7, he has to talk to them about uh, what about these marriages that you're in that are a mess? Slaves didn't have rights and there were common law marriages and there were forced arrangements. And Paul had to talk to them about, should I marry? Should I not marry? Should I divorce? Should I not divorce? How do I handle this? And Paul had to walk through the landmines of difficult marriages. He had some folks that were insistent on spiritual gifts ruling the day. So much so that he had to talk in chapter 12 about the diversity of gifts, that not everyone has the same gift. And he talked in chapter 13 about whatever gift you have, you've got to work it in love. And then in chapter 14, he had to say, listen, this is what it looks like. He said, this is the way you do a Pentecostal service. I mean, and it was just nuts and bolts kind of stuff. Then he had to teach them about the resurrection from the dead. And he says, it does make a difference what you believe. I mean, he had his hands full and it required a second letter. And in the second letter, he realized there was something that needed to be fixed that he had not addressed <clears throat> in the first letter. He begins by talking about the God of all comfort. He said, there are some of you that have been so hurt and there are some of you that have been so wronged. There are some of you that carry such a heavy load that you have lost all hope. Later, he would talk about those that had a thorn in the flesh that they had prayed and prayed and prayed about, but God's answer for deliverance seems to be no. He was one of them. He said, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he needed them to learn that lesson. And it was a church that had incredible potential, but had been turned upside down because they were operating by the culture of the time and not by the culture of the kingdom. So when he begins his second letter, and trying to deal with all these problems, and there's even a possibility there was a third letter written that wasn't inspired that we don't have a record of, but it took a lot of time. He said, when he began the letter, he said, I want to talk to you about the foundation that will make everything else make sense. Without this understanding, it will never make sense. You will continue to have questions about spiritual gifts. You will continue to be divided in the church. Oh, they, their problem wasn't immaturity. They just all had their favorite preacher they followed. Some Paul, some Peter, some uh, Apollos and others. Some, you know, and some say, oh, no, I'm the spiritual ones. I just follow Jesus. Just 
Their theme song was me and Jesus. We got our own thing going. And he said, there are some of you that think it doesn't matter how you live. There are some of you that think no words worth speaking unless it's in tongues. There are some of you that think a service is meaningless unless it has all kinds of manifestation. He said, we got to work through some things. He said, there are divisions. In fact, Paul, when he was describing unspiritual people, he mentions four times in the New Testament this is unspiritual, this is unspiritual, this is unspiritual, this is unspiritual. Three of the four examples of unspiritual behavior, he used the Corinthians. They had this thing going. So he said, let's try something. If you can wrap your arms around this, it'll make all the difference in the world. And he began to write beautiful passage of scripture about the God of all comfort. Now, I'm going to probably interrupt myself a couple of times going through this, but let's see what Paul had to say. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Now Paul is rattling some basic theology that some held to. He, he would say in another place, he would say, I suppose that we apostles are just the scourge of the earth. Because when you talk about suffering, we seem to be leading the way. And that wasn't a pity party he was having. He was saying, I want you to understand, those of you that think Christians are above suffering, the apostles, the leaders of the church, we excel in suffering. It seems that God just pours this out on us because loved ones, it's another sermon for another time, but there are some graces and there are some benefits that come through suffering that don't come any other way. Now, God didn't create suffering. God doesn't want us to suffer uh, just because he's a capricious God that enjoys seeing us suffer. Everything that we suffer, all the sickness, everything that we wrestle with in this earth is a product of our rebellion. It's not a God who has mood swings. Uh, you know, if God loves me, why does he allow this? That's not the question. We know why he allowed this because we said we want it. I mean, we want our own way. God's incredible grace and mercy says, I'll walk you through what you've demanded. I'll walk you through what you caused and I'll help you come out the other side. And the day will come when we'll set all this right. But it's hard to remember that when you're the one doing the suffering. Now he says, just as we have suffered, we have also been comforted. And if you are following us in suffering, you can follow us in comfort as well. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. He said, listen, we are in a broken world. 
It's not God's fault. He's not broken. He's not uh, trying to piece together his issues. But we're in a world that's broken and we will suffer. And, and there seems to be a suffering that we endure as Christians that the world doesn't partake of. He said, but know this, if we share in sufferings, we will also share in comfort. Well, we all know that, but what does the comfort look like? What, when does it come? He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Now, <clears throat> I grew up, I, I misunderstood the scripture, and I misunderstood the teaching. I was taught that Jesus says, I'll never let you go through more than you can bear. But can I tell you, he does that all the time. He never said, I won't let you go through more than you can bear. If Paul is about to explain one of those situations. He did say he won't let us be tempted above that which we can bear. That means I'm not going to be able to say, Lord, I know I did wrong, but I, I'm just a man. You know, I'm just a man. It was more than I could, could do. It was more than I could handle. He says, you'll never be to the point that you can't say no. You'll never be to the point that you can't resist. Now that's a precious promise because the devil could just overwhelm us if God let him. You know, I think of the devil saying, let me have Job. And Job saying, yeah, do this, do that. But don't go here. God puts a don't go here over all of our lives. Okay. Now he won't let me be tempted above that, which I can stand. But what about times, Pastor, I, I'd love to trust the Lord, but he told me I wouldn't have more than I could handle, and I have had more than I could handle. In fact, the only reason I'm here today is to see if somebody will invite me to Thanksgiving dinner. It's the only reason I've come. Well, he says in verse 8, middle of verse 8, he says, we, this was when he was in Asia, we were under great pressure. What kind of pressure? far beyond our ability to endure. He said, we could not handle this. How, how distressed were we? We despaired of life itself. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Ah, the flesh, it burns. Ah. That's good. That's what I needed. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you so much. He says, far beyond our ability to endure it so that we despaired of life itself. He said, I, 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 I thought we were going to die. He said, we wrote our final letters to mama. We checked our wills. We were not going to survive this. And loved ones, some of you have been there. The anxiety of what you're facing is so great. You feel like you're dying. I've been there maybe three times in my life. Thank God it didn't last long. But many of you know what it's like to be under such despair, such a loss, such a betrayal that you don't know if you're going to survive. And, you know, I used to laugh at Fred Sanford when he would fake and say, it's the big one, Elizabeth. But when you feel like it's the big one, Elizabeth, that's not funny anymore. That's a moment of intercession on Sanford and Son. <laughs> wow. 
He said, indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. In other words, the wording here, it may be, it may be that Paul was saying, we felt God had decreed this was it for us. This is the way we're going to die. But this happened, why? So that we might not rely on ourselves, <laughs> but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. He said, this isn't the first or the last time we're going to be facing death. He says, this isn't the first or the last time we're going to be in over our heads, unable to deal with this. But we have set our hope that he's going to continue to deliver us. He says, and besides, you are helping us with your prayer. This isn't part of the message, but I want to say thank you for the way you prayed for me and my family and my brother's memorial last week. Uh, I hate I couldn't be here with uh, um, John Easter and with you, but I was very mindful of your prayers. Thank you so much. I love you. So I just wanted to say that. He says, then many will give thanks on our behalf and the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Um, he said, we went through this incredible difficulty that we thought was terminal. Now this is Paul talking. This isn't some new convert. Paul says, we felt that we were not going to survive. We felt, he may be saying that God himself had said, this is it. You're going to die a martyr's death. And he said, we were ready to die because of the distress that was a part of our lives. He said, but God helped us and God showed us that he can help us when nobody else can help us. And that's why he would be able to write to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Through situations like Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he came to the conclusion that we live in two realms. There's eternity where everything's going to be set right. And there's this, this present time. And it's the stream of time in which we live right now. We're going to talk about this as we get into the new year. But this present time is different than what's going to be. This present time is difficult, not like what's going to be. This present time is defining. It's in moments that we face here that we are revealed, we are, we are scrubbed clean. We are refined. This present time serves a lot of purpose. And the problem with this present time is that it's daily. We live in the present time. Now, what do we do when Paul says, I want you to understand something about your comfort? There are, there are some dynamics here that he says, if you're going to grow in Christ, and I say it today, I'm not talking down to you. We all need to grow in Christ. But if you're going to grow up in Christ, you've got to get your head wrapped around these dynamics 
of what Paul said the Corinthians need. Now, we're going to see that he weaves in mystery. This is the context. Divine comfort is beyond understanding and reason. Divine comfort is beyond understanding and reason. That means when God comforts us, the way he does it, the when he does it, the the order he follows sometimes makes no sense to us. Makes no sense to us. It is beyond our understanding, beyond reason. When I was in the fourth grade, uh, nine or 10 years old, um, I had to go to the hospital, have my tonsils removed. It was just a simple thing. But um, my wife says, sometimes I have a way of making simple things complex. And to make a long story short, the doctor stood at the foot of the bed. I was vomiting blood. And he said, we cannot stop the bleeding. He said, we've done everything we can to stop the bleeding. And unless we go back in and try something else, um, he said, your son won't be with you past this afternoon. Now I heard that. Uh, now, you know, on TV, they always go in the other room to talk, but they didn't with me. So I heard that and my mama prayed over me and I will never forget her tears dropping in my face as we stood at the elevator. And she said, I can't go with you any further, but Jesus will go with you. And this is a mom with her face in mine as I'm spewing blood. And uh, they took me into the room and the doctor was so sweet. The, the, the nurses were phenomenal but they were not listening. They, they wanted to comfort me. And I explained what I needed. Number one was for them to leave me alone. <laughs> and number two, most importantly, I needed my mama. And uh, they said, well, I, we'll get your mama just as soon as we're through. And to make a long story short, they were stroking my cheek. They were mopping up blood. They, the problem, he told my mom, is he's been under anesthesia so long, we kept him under a long time trying to stop this. And what we tried didn't work. We can't put him back under. So we've got to do this with him awake. They brought in a tray with scissors. <laughs> with, a, with a needle it, it, it was, it was big and they tried to do local stuff and all that. And my mom said from the operating floor above before the days of air conditioning, she could hear me screaming. And, uh, she said, I walked out under the balcony to pray. And I, she said, I gave you to the Lord. I prepared to lose you. Well, I know you're wondering how it turned out. I lived. <laughs> but, but can I tell you, um, they did. They did it all with, with me awake. And uh, I had to go back for follow-ups for several weeks. And I always cried when they were taking me to the doctor. Because he was the man that really hurt me. It took about four visits for me to understand he was the man that saved my life. And um, it was a while before I liked him. My mama said, we're going to go see Dr. King. And I said, he's the king monster. 
But loved ones, you say, well, that was just a little nine, 10 year old boy. And sure, nobody, nobody would expect much more from a nine or 10 year old. But the thing about it is, uh, the thing about it, am I, am I hearing things? Oh, it's, oh, it's real. Okay. Um, it's just the bird of death. I didn't know. Um, we do that. We do that as Christians. We ask God to help us. And what happens when he helps us because it's not the way we want him to help us, we get upset. And I want to tell you, we, instead of asking for grace and comfort, we are in a culture that expects God to apologize. Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not belittling pain. I'm not belittling suffering. And we all probably dip down into doubt and despair if the situation's bad enough or the loss is bad enough. But I'm seeing an increase in this. I've, I've lived long enough, I can begin to see trends. And we are in a church culture in America that if Jesus will just become, you know, a hipster and wear bowling shoes and get the right haircut, we will accept him until he moves in a way we don't understand. And loved ones, it's not, I'm not trying to be glib with this, <laughs> but faith has as its component an element that says, though he slay me, I will trust him. I realize we're not there automatically. We sometimes have to carry a load to get there, but we have become a church culture. I, I hope not us, but we have become a church culture where God did not do what I wanted him to do. <laughs> we don't say it that way. We say if God was really all powerful, he could have stopped this, which is true. But the bottom line at the end of the day, if God wants me to serve him, he better give me an apology. And we don't understand what a grievous sin of unbelief that is. We say, uh, you know, Jesus, I trust you. You're my savior. You can do anything. And we don't train our children. We don't train ourselves. We don't live it out to walk through the dark valley. For some reason, somebody told you you have to understand everything. Science thinks they understand everything. So they say if you'd be more like science and less like religion, you'd have an understanding of everything. Is that why science changes its theories every few years? <laughs> Study the history of science. It takes a, as much faith to live in a scientific community as it does to live in a religious community. Now, I'm not an enemy of science. I think, I think when Jesus turns, we will see that true science and true religion flow from the same source. But, but we've, we, we have a cultural battle going on and the, the battle's outcome is whether or not I will serve the Lord. And the determinant of the battle is does he move in a way that I accept? And maybe if it's not that, does he move in a way I understand? See, you, you, you might not be hostile that say, well, I don't, I don't like what he did and I'm not going to serve him. You may not be hostile like that, but you may be, I don't understand why he allowed this to happen, so I'm still not going to serve him. It's just the same thing, lesser degree. 
You say, well, pastor, not everybody has perfect faith like you. Loved ones, I, I don't want to dishonor his name by going over the battles, the question marks that I've had. I walked through that cemetery last Saturday and I, I looked and stopped at some of the question marks I've got in life. You say, well, what happened? Did you figure it out? No. I just decided somewhere along the line, God meant what he said and he's good, but I may not understand it. And I want to tell you, I went to a grave of a love. I went to a grave of a stillborn child. And I remember the first time I went to that grave and didn't cry. I, I cried for three years. Every time I went, I sat in a thunderstorm and just got covered with rain because I couldn't bring myself to leave. Sat there for over an hour. And I remember the first time I went and didn't cry, I, I started walking away and it hit me. Oh man, my heart is cold. I don't love this child anymore. I don't this, that, or the other. And I just beat myself up senseless. And the Lord spoke to my heart so clearly later that day. And he said, your heart hasn't gotten cold. He said, you finally begun to trust that this is not the end. Oh, I knew it. I embraced it. And that's why I'm saying there are those of you that are here that are suffering horrendous losses. There, there, are, there are those of you here that have suffered losses in the past and it's still a raw wound. I'm not, I'm not fussing at you. I'm not condemning you. You and I are prone to those struggles and they're legitimate. They're, they're not signs of unbelief. <laughs> they are signs of pain. And they are signs of hurt. But if you're going to follow the Lord, you've got to come to the place sometime. It may take a year, may take two years, may take three years. But you've got to come to the place where you say, I trust you, Lord. You say, but I don't, don't understand. I don't understand. I do not understand. I, 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 I have tried to take a positive spin. I've tried to work out the reasoning. I don't understand. But I have made the decision, whether it's that or a, a half dozen other question marks that were in that cemetery. I had to come to the realization that God's ways aren't just better than, I mean, you know, we, we think God's ways are higher than ours, meaning God, God thinks like us on steroids. You know, he, he thinks the same thing we do. It's just a little more refined and polished. No, he begins that passage in Isaiah by saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. And that wasn't him criticizing us. He said, you don't understand, understand this. I don't think the way you think. I don't see the way you see. I understand the way you think and see. I am a high priest touched with the feeling of your infirmities. I created your emotions. The problem is not that I don't understand. The problem is that you cannot understand. So we have to trust. There's mystery, there's balance. 
God chooses to extend his comfort in various ways. Do you know that there are gifts? The Bible, especially in the Greek, is very clear. There are gifts of healing, not the gift of healing. There are gifts of healing. That means God will heal this way. He'll heal that way. He'll heal this way. Sometimes he'll heal that way. Sometimes he'll use natural. Sometimes it's supernatural. You know, if, if the people in the Gospels would have had our attitude, they would have been broken into denominations before Jesus ever went to the cross. You'd have had the one touch, the two touch, the spit in your eye, the up close, the far away. No, Jesus heals. However he heals, we let him heal. There are gifts of healing. And when it says he's the God of all comfort, it's carrying the same thought. He's the gift of all kinds of comfort. See, he knows what Erna needs in a situation and he'll comfort her this way. But he knows what Justin needs in a situation. He'll comfort him differently. He knows how Jeremy is hurting in a situation and he may bring comfort from a totally different direction because he's the God of all comfort. He also wants us to focus. He, we need to focus on the God of comfort, not on the comfort itself. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorites. And I want to recommend um, a video to you. I think I saw it on Amazon Prime. I think it's called C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. It is excellent. And if you'd like to know a little bit more about how C.S. Lewis came to the Lord... It's, it's worth watching. Very well done. The most reluctant convert. C.S. Lewis understood something <clears throat> about this mystery, about this balance, about this focus. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and in the book, The Horse and His Boy, there's a magical talking horse, uh, when, who is kind of the hero on some level of the story. And um, this talking horse, um, who was probably the great, 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 great grandmother of Mr. Ed. Um, <laughs> is, is a wise horse, but kind of shy. And she sees Aslan for the first time. And Aslan, of course, represents Jesus, represents God. And, and she understood something about the majesty of Aslan. In the book, it says she kind of nervously, you know, she pawed and then kind of pranced over to him and was talking to him. And it was like everybody was thinking, oh, be careful, this is Aslan. And this is what she says. I'd rather, she, she had this strange uh, feeling and she said, I'd rather be eaten by Aslan than fed by another. What she was saying is, there's something about him, even if he doesn't treat me the way I think I ought to be treated, I'll take that rather than the kindness of anybody else. It was, it was also echoed back in the, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. You remember Mr. Beaver, um, great church member. He and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver were talking to Lucy and, and she, they mentioned Aslan, and there was just kind of a glow in the room when they mentioned Aslan. And Lucy says, who, who is Aslan? And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver say, who is Aslan? And they spend about two or three paragraphs trying to describe Aslan. 
and it's just beyond description. And finally, she said, well, Aslan sounds wonderful, but is he safe? I mean, he's a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, of course. He says, girl, you haven't been listening. Of course he isn't safe. <laughs> but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis in that story, and then back with the horse and his boy, he understood what Job said. I know that a lot of word of faith preachers kind of poo-poo uh, Job. And I, I've heard far more sermons on the weakness of Job's faith than, uh, than I care to digest. And none of them were accurate or worth listening to. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. That was carnal. I shouldn't have said that. But I tell you what the Old Testament teaches us about Job. It teaches us that was, he was one of the three most righteous men in the Old Testament. Don't you let preachers shove Job out of the way. I mean, sometimes it sounds real noble. Well, I just care about Jesus. I'm not studying Job. Well, you better study Job because even Jesus referred to him. Well, that's not nice either. Let me... Job said something that is life-changing if you can grasp it. Though he slay me, I will still trust him. Now, it wasn't just saying, well, if he kills me, I'll still trust him. I mean, I want to play it safe. If he kills me, I'll still trust him. No, he was saying, if life deals with, to me, a verdict I do not understand, See, we understand Job because we've got the backstory. Job didn't have the backstory. He didn't know what was happening. He didn't know about the talk that Satan had with God and the deal God made. He, he was clueless to any of that. But in the middle of all of it, when his three friends were telling him what was going on and all three of them were wrong, none of them were remotely close. And in the height of his confusion, he said, I don't understand. You are not helping me. And I don't understand. But I know this. However this ends, I trust him. That's a huge, huge mountain to live on. It's a huge victory to win. You see, it doesn't mean you have to gain understanding. It just means you have to gain trust. So what are the principles? What do we take away from this? Paul wanted the Corinthian church to understand three things. And I think because of its placement in the, in the letter, thank you, that's good. I, I think because of its relationship to other things he talked about, I think this was pivotal. He, he, I believe Paul was saying, if you can understand this, everything else will take care of itself. Here's number one. He said, I want you to know who God is. Verse three. He's the God and Father of Jesus. Now, I think what is behind this is a very simple thing. We've talked about it a lot. Um, there's a movement today among some teachers that we need to disband the old, not disband, but unhitch, disregard the Old Testament 
and just focus on the New Testament um, because the God of the Old Testament was wrathful. The God of the Old Testament was judgmental. But Jesus is love. Um, there's several problems with that. Number one, you cannot possibly, you cannot remotely understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. It, 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 it's impossible. It, it's not just difficult, it's impossible. It becomes an abstract, sloppy agape unless it's rooted in the Old Testament. Paul said twice um, that the stories of the Old Testament are given to us as instruction, as teaching. And when the, the, the New Testament church, the church of the book of Acts, when they came together, um, you've got to understand the Old Testament was the only Bible they had. And it wasn't recognized, codified as scripture for over 200 years. So don't sell short the Old Testament. And when Paul said, who is, who is God? He's the God and Father of Jesus. It was his way of saying what Jesus said in chapter 14 of John, when one of the disciples said, show us the Father and we'll be happy. He, th he thought if we could just see the Father, that'll solve all our problems. And, and Jesus said, have I been with you so long that you haven't understood that when you see me, I'm an exact replication of the Father? It wasn't some Trinity juggling thing where Jesus said, oh, I'm really the Father. He wasn't the Father, he was the Son. But he was the express image of the Father. And he said, when you see me work in mercy, that's the heart of the Father. Well, I thought he was judgmental and harsh like he was in the Old Testament. You don't think Jesus is judgmental? Maybe that's the wrong word. Jesus occupies judgment and wrath. You need to read the book of Revelation. That's a whole lot of wrath. And Jesus is at the center of it. You, you, you don't think Jesus is demanding? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Well, Buddha could point it. No, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not your spirit guide, not Allah. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty restrictive. He's the God and Father of Jesus. And then he says something else. He's the Father of compassion. The Father of compassion or Father of mercies. Whenever the scripture says that someone is the father of something, it means that the seed of all that that is was in them. Um, when he says Satan is the father of lies, he was saying that's where lies began. Every lie proceeds from Satan. Every lie. My pastor used to say you're never more like the devil than when you tell a lie. Every lie proceeds from him. When Abraham was called the father of the faithful, he wasn't the first one to have faith. But in scripture, he's where we see faith born, grow, come to maturity, fail, pass a test, and overcome. 
you want to understand faith, you go to Abraham. He's the father of the faithful. Oh, there were other faithful. Noah was before Abraham. Uh, Seth was before <coughs> Abraham. Abel was before Abraham. But when we look at Abraham, we see what it's like to come to faith out of, out of paganism and to grow to maturity. He's the father of the faithful. And when it says that God is the father of compassion, this is what he's saying. Everything that helps you, whether it's a sermon, a movie, a, a walk with your dog, memory, or memories of the past, whatever comforts you, God put that together for you and crafted it. Okay? He's the God of all comfort. That means sometimes he just brings relief. Sometimes he brings strength. Sometimes he brings coping. Sometimes he brings hope. All kinds of comfort. So he says, I, we, I want you to know that you're in a broken world with a broken system, but you serve a God who is the God of all comfort. He's the Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the God, not only of all comfort, but the Father of compassion. God is on your side. If he wanted to destroy you, he's had millions of opportunities. He could have caused you to never see the light of day. That's why Paul said, since God is for us, who can be against us? That's, and by the way, I know that I said since. And you say, well, the Bible says if. Well, it's a little construct called a Hena clause. And it, it shouldn't have been translated if. It, it should have been translated since we know. Since we know God is with us, who can be against us? Okay, but he doesn't just stop with who God is. He says, this is what God does. He extends his supernatural comfort to those of us who are hurting. He extends his supernatural comfort to those of us who are hurting. It's sometimes just a touch. Sometimes it's just a reminder. Sometimes it's just a well-timed letter or a well-timed phone call. Sometimes somebody just stops by with a coconut cake. <laughs> Comfort looks different, but he comforts us. We used to sing a song when I was growing up, uh, reach out and touch the Lord. As he goes by, as he passes by, you'll find he's not too busy to hear your heart's cry. He's passing by this moment your needs to supply. Reach out and touch the Lord as he goes by. None of us ever expected to reach out and feel him. But we understood what was said is draw near. Expect the touch of the Lord. Expect him to respond to your touch. I think about the time that Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat and I'll meet you on the other side. And they got caught in a storm. And the Bible says that Jesus comes walking on the water. And it's interesting, the text says he would have passed them by. What? There's a storm, they're about to go down. And Jesus, it says he would have passed them by. Uh, we're not sure exactly what that means. Probably it means Jesus said, I'll see you on the other side. You're, you're going to make it. We don't know. Maybe it was a test of their faith, but they called out and Jesus came, calmed the storm, 
there at the other side. Sometimes it looks like he's going to pass us by. Sometimes it feels like he has passed us by. Sometimes we list a dozen ways he could have helped or he could have moved and he didn't. But God has a way of comforting us. And sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not obvious. I've told you about the low point of my life when I just wanted to die. I really, I wasn't suicidal or anything like that, but I just, I just thought I'd be better off dead. Specifically, I thought my wife and, and Jeremy would be better off with insurance money than with me. And I really wanted to die every night at three o'clock. Um, a, a demonic spirit just woke me up and tormented me and taunted me. And it went on for months and months, the better part of a year. And um, I remember when I had just reached the breaking point, I, I, I went into the family room to pray. Jeremy was asleep. Ramona was asleep. I, I was so tired of waking her up and, and I knew I was exhausting her. So I went in there and just began to pray. I said, Lord, I just, I can't take this anymore. I, I, I just can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. And I began to pray in tongues, which that, that wasn't something new. I did that a lot. But as I began to pray in tongues, I felt there was an intensity to it and a, and a pressing through it. And I just knew I was calling out saying, Lord, I can't take this anymore. I, I said, I need your touch. And at my moment of desperation, feeling like I am not going to live, I knelt and said, I am dying right now. I felt Ramona put her hand right on the middle of my back. And from that hand, there was such compassion. From that hand, there was power. From that hand, there was grace. From that hand, there was mercy. And I thought, why haven't you done this before? You know, because this is making all the difference. This is giving me strength. And then I heard a noise and looked up and she was entering the room. It wasn't her hand on my back. It wasn't Jeremy's hand on my back. I realized that the Lord just, he knew that I needed comfort. But I want to tell you something. He didn't fix it that night. But later when the Lord brought a deliverance to me and set me free and delivered me from that stuff, uh, I look back on that night when I felt the comforting hand of God. And I realized, I didn't realize it at all then until later it was over. I realized that that thing turned that night and it began to move me toward victory that night because and, and the point I'm trying to make is that we think God's comfort means he comes and does it all at once. But sometimes it's victory by small steps. But he comforts us. Now here, just before we get to the life matters, he says, this is who God is. This is what God does. But why does he do it? This is in verse four. In order for us to become channels through which comfort flows to others around us. He knows we're all like the little boy that was afraid in a thunderstorm and he called out for his mama to come lay in bed with him, keep him. He was scared of the storm. And the mama said, said, Johnny, you know that Jesus is with you. 
He's not going to let anything happen to you. He's right here in this room with you. And Johnny looked at her and held on tighter and said, yeah, but I, I, sometimes I need a God with skin on. And that's the way we are. And he says, I see your, your, your pain. I, 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 and I'm giving you comfort. But you need to let me give you comfort. And when you receive the comfort and you work through this, then you help others that are going through the same kind of thing you are. Um, we become light bearers and presence bearers. And loved ones, please, I, I, I know because I've done this. I'm, I'm not scolding you. But sometimes we're in a bad place and we just want God to bring us comfort and relief. And he does. But if we're not careful, we'll just go right back to where we were. And the next trial shakes us the same way. Because God has designed this thing. When he gives you comfort and helps you through your trial, you start looking for people that you can say, I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. I went to a dinner with a friend of mine that was a cancer survivor and I sat at a table and, um, you know, I thought I'm the pastor. I'm the one that can give comfort. I'm the one that can give them some great Bible verses. Every one of those people were cancer survivors, cancer survivors. And as they began to talk, I realized I have nothing to say to this table. They have been through something and they understand each other like I cannot possibly understand because I've never been through cancer. And I just sat there the rest of the meal and just soaked in their faith, soaked in their perspective. You see, because of what they've been through, they've got something to say that I didn't have. They've got a perspective that I didn't have. Now, that doesn't mean I'm worthless. It doesn't mean I haven't had trials. It just means that's not my trial. It's not the one I've been through. I hope I spend the rest of my life not being part of that club. I mean, I really do. But loved ones, whenever we're hurting, you need your time to grieve. You need your time to process. And it may take a long time. But you will eventually come to that place where you've got to start helping others. And that's what Paul wanted the Corinthians to know. So what are the Christian life lessons? Let's wrap this up. Number one, it's a priority for every believer to understand the heart of the Father. You see, the more you understand Father's heart, the less you find yourself in doubt. You say, well, if I do doubt, what does that mean? All doubt means is that you haven't gone to heaven yet. That's all it means. We're all going to doubt. And sometimes the hurt is so painful that we may wrestle with doubt periodically, sometimes for a long time. But you don't stay there because you understand the heart of the Father. I don't understand why. I don't understand why this. I don't understand why now. But I know that God loves me and he works all things for my good. That sounds like a cliche, but loved ones, it's the foundation of faith and we've got to find a way to wrap our arms around it. Number two, we need to look for comfort in difficult times, not apologies. This is a theological statement and it's a Wittenberg door pounding kind of thing. 
we have got to move away from the, the, the teaching that's rising almost unnoticed in the church world that says, if God is so good, why don't I understand what he's doing? If God is so good, why does he allow these things to happen? Let me say it one more time. Adam made a choice to live his own way. It broke the arrangement that we had with God. And we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Whether you're black or white, whether you're Hispanic or Indian, it doesn't matter. We're all from the same seed. And all of us have been broken. And we are in a world where the brokenness shows up every day through violence, injustice, racism, crime, meanness, perversion, human trafficking. God did not do that. God did not allow or, or call for sickness. It's when we as a race moved out from covenant with him. Now, people don't seem to get that. They, they, you know, if God wanted to, he could do something about it. He has. He sent his son to die on the cross to redeem us. The problem is it's not the redemption wasn't instantaneous, except in the spiritual realm. We're in the process of being redeemed. And God is going to make everything right. Everything, spirit, soul, and body is going to be set right. But we're not there yet. And we've got to trust him that he has taken us on a journey. And we'll get there. But there's no other option. We have to trust. You say, well, I'm not there yet, pastor, so what do I do? You ask God to help you. You ask God to teach you. You ask God to show his heart to you because anything I can talk you into, somebody on the radio can talk you out of. Anything that a church piece of literature can convince you of, somebody else's piece of literature can talk you out of. It's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we need to be careful. We're so angry with the world, world right now. We think that we can argue with them. We think we can debate with them. We think that we can philosophize with them. And there's a place for all of that. Peter said to be ready to give reason for the hope that lies within you. I understand there's, there's a place for all of that. But loved ones, at the end of the day, nobody that you're praying for is going to be convinced of any truth unless the Spirit of God teaches them. And touches their heart. Father, we're out of time. <clears throat> I'm almost out of coffee. But I ask you to move by the Holy Spirit. Ministry teams here in Brown Chapel, please move into place. This is what we want to do today. If you're here or you're listening and you don't know Jesus, we're going to ask you to make your way to one of these ministry teams in just a moment. In person, if you're here or in Brown Chapel, or if you're listening online, uh, you're watching, there's a number that'll come up on your screen. Folks are ready to talk to you about how to follow Jesus. But there are also some of you here, 
you're not having to deal with sin. You're not in rebellion. You just say, Pastor, I'm just hurting so bad. I, I don't, I need some answers and I don't have them. I don't want to be doubt filled. I don't want to be unbelieving. I love Jesus and I know I'm going to heaven, but Pastor, there's just some dysfunction or, or trouble or hurt, betrayal, whatever in my life. You may think it came from people. You may think it came from God. Pastor, I need help. Loved ones, we want to pray for you. We believe that the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. We believe that things happen when we're prayed for that don't happen if we're not prayed for. I want to invite you to come. Would everyone stand, please? And we're going to dismiss you within 60 seconds. But if you would like to have prayer, I want to ask you to just begin to come forward to the ministry teams. They'll pray with you, okay? Just slip out of your seat and begin to come now. I want to dismiss the others. Father, let us go with the blessing of the Lord. May your face shine upon us with peace and radiant joy. May we know the joy of Jesus as we move into the holiday season. May we feel the peace and blessing and favor of the Lord. And Father, I pray for those that are, that are carrying some loss uh, and they've got to carry it through the holidays. Give them your perspective. Give them your help. Let us be strong for each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.